Welcome, everybody, to Between the Lines, a podcast produced by the Louis Jacobs Foundation and committed to Rabbi Jacobs' belief that the quest for Torah is itself Torah. My name is Simon Eder, and each week I'm joined by a special guest who helps us to deconstruct that week's parasha, exploring new paths on the quest for Torah. And as we continue our journey through the book of Shemot, Coming towards the end, it is wonderful to welcome back Dr. Jeremy Tabit, who is the content manager and also faculty at Hadar, where he teaches, curates, and also edits Hadar's content. And that's both online and in print. And of course, also their wonderful Project Zug courses as well. Jeremy has recently completed his PhD in Talmud at JTS, and he's a graduate of the University of Manchester, but now, of course, lives uh, very much on the other side of the pond from the UK, where he is loved and well embedded in New York. Dr. Tabit, wonderful to welcome you back. Wonderful to be here. And of course, we're going to approach today Kitissa, and I think we want to really explore two words, El Kana, that we encounter, of course, in Exodus 34, and also we've encountered them. I think it was in in Exodus 20, the in 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 the second commandment. And I wonder, really, what does it mean, El Kana, Elus, or zealous god right i knew you you laid out the cards right there zealous or jealous those are the two main contenders for the meaning of the word i know this is we're dealing with parashat kitisa but we can't really deal with elkanah without looking at the commandments as you say and there's a version in that we've already seen in exodus 20 and there's also the version in deuteronomy 5 Uh, and here it's more or less the same and the context of where this phrase elkanah appears in the ten commandments is exactly that ambiguity between zealous and jealous. So if you don't mind, I'll take you through it for a second. So you shouldn't bow down to them or worship them, those other gods. Because I am your God. I am this Elkanah, the phrase we're exploring. The one who visits the sin of fathers upon children. For multiple generations to my to my enemies. And then it goes on, but I will do kindness for thousands, to those who love me and to those who keep my uh, mitzvot, my commandments. So this phrase, El Kana, is exactly placed between the idea that you shouldn't worship other gods and the idea that God is overzealous in punishment. In other words, God punishes over and above what is what you might have expected, what might be seen to be just. In other words, God actually goes beyond, and this is a very troubling idea that I want to unpack here, but it seems here that God not only goes beyond in kindness and gives kindness to thousands much more than you would expect, but also God punishes much more than you would expect. But if you 
do something wrong, even your children, your grandchildren will be punished for, for the sin that you did. So this Elkanah sort of sits between the first half, do not worship other gods. That's as if God is a jealous God. You don't want to worship other gods, and God is jealous of you worshiping those gods. As opposed to the latter half of the phrase, which is more about zealous, more about being over the top, being unrestrained, being un- unable to control your impulses. For setting that all out, I really wonder then what light is thrown by the use of El Kanar then in Exodus 34? Great question. I think that the one of the key things here is that the, especially the second version, the zealousness, the fact that God cannot restrain God's desire to punish, but goes beyond what is what you would expect. That in particular, I think was very troubling to many authors. And we actually see this as an argument in already in the Tanakh, in the Bible, that when the prophet Ezekiel already makes it clear that sons shouldn't be punished for the sins of their parents. It seems to be a direct uh, reaction and contradiction to this image in the Ten Commandment. Uh, but I want to suggest that Parsha Kitisa also has a reaction uh, to this idea in the Ten Commandments and also neuters it in a very interesting way. Uh, because uh, if you look through the chapter of Exodus 34, you'll see that the idea that the god is Elkanah shows up only in one of the two contexts. It does not show up in the context of God goes beyond punishment, beyond what you expected. It does not show up in the context of zealousness. It only shows up in the context of jealousy. In Exodus 34, it reads, You shouldn't bow down to another god, because God, Adonai, is jealous, is his name. El Kanahu, he is a jealous god. There's no ambiguity. In Exodus 34, El Kanah means jealous. The idea is that you should not worship other gods. And that's what the El Kanah comes to say, that God does not want you to worship other gods. And there's no hint at all in the phrase El Kanah in Exodus 34 of the zealousness, of the going beyond punishment. But it actually goes a little deeper than that, because the theme of zealousness, of going beyond the punishment you would expect, does show up in a different part of the chapter but not in the context of Elkanah. Because in our parasha, we have the terrible sin of the golden calf, and then Moshe tries to persuade God to stick it out with the people and not abandon them. And we have a sort of revelation of God's attributes, which are called the, the 13 attributes, which are a major part of our liturgy on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And there, you see the same idea of Bokade Avon Avot Albanim, this idea of visiting the sin of the fathers on the children, has been recontextualized and also completely divorced from El Kana on the one hand, and also reinterpreted by Kitisa on the other hand. So there we have Vayavo Adonai El God passed before Moshe's face, Vayikra, and called. And there's some ambiguity as to exactly whether the next two words how to parse the next two words of who's speaking, if Moshe is speaking or God is speaking. But let's imagine that it's God speaking and declaring God's attributes. So it's the reading of the passage is not totally clear. God is a merciful God and a gracious God, slow to anger, full of kindness, full of love, and truth. Who guards chesed, who guards love to thousands. I think the idea is God is always looking for a way to, to be kind. It's not. It's actually very interesting. In the Ten Commandments, we have os e chesed, one who does chesed. God is someone who just happens to do 
kindness sometimes. But in Exodus 34, it's not Ser Chesed. God is a watcher of Chesed, somebody who just like tries to look out for any opportunity to do love, to do Chesed for, for thousands. And Nosei Avon, who forgives sin, different three different words for sin. Now, our liturgy ends the quote halfway through in order that it's all about forgiveness. It ends with the quote, as if we will be clean of punishment, we'll be totally pure. Um, that's, of course, not what the Pasuk says. But nonetheless, you'll see that actually the way I think the Pasuk should be read is not so far off uh, from the liturgy, which emphasizes the God's forgiving power for this line. Because even when it talks about God's punishing power, I think you'll see that it actually gets wiped out, gets totally swamped by God's love. And that's, I think, the idea of Exodus 34. But God will not let you off the hook totally. Because God does visit the sin of fathers upon children. And on future generations. So there's a couple of interesting moves that Exodus 34 has taken compared to, to the Second Commandment. In the Second Commandment, we already talked about the Oseh Chesed versus the Notzer Chesed, the doing Chesed as opposed to guarding Chesed, very much emphasizing the love in the Exodus 34 version. But also, Exodus 20 is very specific as to who receives this extra zealous punishment and who receives the extra zealous reward. And that is the people who suffer the punishment are Lason Ai, those who hate God. And the people who receive the reward are Ohavai, those who love me, God, or the Shomrei Mitzvotai, and who keep my commandments. So, very, so either you're in one camp or you're the other camp. It's hard for you to be a, someone who hates God and also somebody who loves God and fulfills God's word. So you're either in one of those two camps. Either you're receiving God's disproportionate punishment or you are the be- beneficiary of God's disproportionate love. But for Exodus 34, that is not the case. There is no indication of who it's supposed to, who the punishment and the love goes to. In fact, it seems like it goes on everybody. In other words, to say, God guards kindness for thousands of generations and also visits the sin of fathers upon children. So now if you do the maths, I'm, I'm from London, so it has to be multiple maths. Here are people would question me and say there's only one math, but no, there's multiple maths. And if you do the maths and you work it out, say me, according to this, I am receiving the kindness and the love due to my ancestors from a thousand generations ago. And God is still visiting that love upon me. But I'm only suffering for the sins for three generations back for my grandparents. Which one's going to win? It seems like the 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 love that I'm receiving from, th- from a thousand generations or thousands of generations totally swamps the punishments that I'm receiving from the last few generations. So what, the actual point of Exodus 34 is that God's love is overwhelming. And even though God's punishment is disproportionate, it is nowhere near the disproportionate nature of God's love. And so another way, they've, they've not only removed Elkanah to make it not zealous, but just jealous, but they've also given a spin, a positive spin to God's zealousness, which is that it's most poignant and most felt with love and only secondarily, minorly felt with punishment. So I find this comparison really very interesting that the Exodus 34 seems to be picking up on specific cues from Exodus 20 and totally recontextualizing them, reinterpreting them to give it completely its own spin on, on the idea of God's zealousness and God's love. I wonder, is, is there anything else that you see suggesting an understanding from Exodus 34 
in its interpretation, reinterpretation, embellishment of what we see in Exodus 20? Yes, there's actually a very small detail, which I think actually does reveal that the relationship between these two texts is that Exodus 34 is reacting to and reinterpreting Exodus 20, uh, which is that um, in Exodus 20, they use an unclear phrase to talk about the uh, future generations. It says, And this exact phrase, Shileishim and Ribeim, is a bit unclear. What it probably means, by the way, is on your, so it's first fathers and children, that's one generation. That's actually two generations, fathers and children, it's two generations. Shileishim, the third generation, thirds, Shalosh, that takes you down to the grandchildren. And Ribeim is the great-grandchildren, the fourths, Arba. Um, that's probably what it means, but these phrases Shilishim and Ribeim are very unclear. But if you look at Exodus 34, there's actually an explanation embedded in the text uh, of what it's supposed to mean. Uh, and this is my reading. It's not This is not a universal reading of this pasuk. I think you could read it one of two ways, but I think this way is compelling to me, where it says, on your children, that's the first two generations. And then it would continue to say, just like Exodus 20. But it sticks in the middle, al on your children's children. That, I think, is an explanation of what Shileishim means. In other words, somebody saw the word that was unclear, Shileishim, and I wanted to make sure you understood what Shileishim meant and included the words Albanevanim to clarify what Shileishim means, even though Shileishim is unclear. I think that's one just tiny little indication that you can see Exodus 34 knows the Ten Commandments, it's a, it's an, and it's playing off it. This is perhaps an unfair question, but I wonder whether you've thought further about any speculation as to the historical background or context in which Exodus 34 has emerged in its reaction to Exodus 20, and and whether you might comment on that. Yeah, totally. I don't know how far down the path of heresy we want to go in this podcast, but I'm happy to be heretical if that's needed. In terms of the historical background, I think that most uh, biblical scholars would tell you that the earliest version of the Ten Commandments is found in, in Deuteronomy, and that the version in Exodus is a revision of the word version in Deuteronomy. But actually, all the features that I'm talking about that are in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 are also in Deuteronomy 5, in the Deuteronomy's version of the Ten Commandments. So I think from a historical perspective, this is a text which is reacting to the version in Deuteronomy, and is reinterpreting the otherwise problematic idea that we could be punished by our by the sins that we didn't commit. By the way, I would say that might be problematic and it might be something that feels uncomfortable to say that God punishes people for sins they didn't commit. But on the other hand, there is something that feels real about it in the sense that we do suffer for the sins of our parents and our grandparents and in ways that we can't control and can't account for and are not our fault. And that's actually just the that's just reality. And so I think in some ways it's there, they can't and perhaps don't even want to remove any notion of the fact that God punishes disproportionately to future generations, because I think they see that in the world as something that really happens. What they do instead is they limit its application, they limit its impact to our lives such that we are swamped with the love of thousands of generations that overtake and overcome the punishments of the three or four generations. You've maybe hinted at this already a little bit perhaps elsewhere within Tanakh, in in your reference to Ezekiel, I think. But I wonder if you might draw on where else we encounter in Torah this kind of similar inner biblical midrash. 
Yeah, great. So I think it definitely happens. It happens most often between the laws earlier in the Torah and the laws in Deuteronomy. So for example, you have the law in Parashat Mishpatim a few weeks ago, it talks about male slaves going free but it, after seven years, but it never talks about female slaves going free. In Deuteronomy, it says straight up front, very clear about it, all slaves go free, male and female. It's very clear. That seems to be a direct reaction, right? They see the law earlier on in Mishpatim, and the Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy reacts to it strongly and makes sure that you understand that, that is not the whole story. There is all slaves, all Hebrew slaves go free in the seventh year. So that's one other clear example that comes to mind. But yeah, I think this idea of certain biblical texts or looking at others, I think is is very prevalent. I actually, one of the things that I do at Hadar is I work on the weekly Dvar Torah. We send out a, a Dvar Torah on the Parsha every week. And this year it's being done by Rabbi David Kasha, who's the director of Hadar in, in LA, in California. And he had this amazing read for Parsha Mishpatim. And I edit his Dvar Torah every week. So this isn't fresh in my mind. It's an amazing idea where he goes through some of the laws in Mishpatim and talks about how they're reflecting on, revising, or or helping us understand the narratives already that are in Genesis. So I'd encourage you to take that out for more ways in which the Torah seems to play off different passages in a sort of in a biblical midrashic way. I love it. Referring us from in a biblical midrash to a fellow Parshat HaShavua commentary that, of course, with Hadar in mind, that we're happy to recommend. So highly encourage everyone to explore that. Dr. Tabik, Jeremy, wonderful to have you back as ever. Thank you for your incredible Midrashic imagination that you have explored with us today in this, this powerful reading on Elkanah. We very much look forward to inviting you back again. Thank you very much. And next time you see the 13 attributes in your High Holy Day liturgy and you feel like the end has been cut off and it's totally reinterpreted the original sense of the text, now you can see it might not have totally reinterpreted it. The point of the text is indeed to give us love <laughs> more than punishment. Plenty of food for thought for the Yamim Noraim to come later in the year. Dr. Tabik, thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more about our information and our work on our sites, louisjacobs.org and also jewishquest.org. Do tune in again next week as we continue our quest together. Mm-hmm.